everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. I'll be introing our speaker today. Um, uh, William Mauricio is a professor here in comparative media studies. Uh, he revisits the histories of old media when they were new, explores interactive and participatory documentary, writes about the past and future of television, thinks a lot about algorithms and archives, and researches cultural identities and the question of Americanization in the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, he's a professor here in comparative media studies and is also the principal investigator of the MIT Open Documentary Lab, which is where uh, the talk today is coming out of. Um, let's see, Terry picking a few other nice quotes from this, this CV here. Um, <laughs> visiting professorships at the Freie Universität Berlin, Stockholm University, the George August Universität Göttingen, China University of Science and Technology, and in Denmark where he was dream professor, which I think is a title we all want someday. Um, cool. uh, he teaches one of the intro classes that all of the comparative media studies grad students take. Uh, he's taught that Media Theories and Methods 1 for the past couple of years, so uh, he has been the gateway through which many of us have started our journey in media studies. Uh, and we're happy to have him speaking today about some really cool work coming out of the Open Documentary Lab, emphasizing uh, alternatives to single authorship. Great, well thank you. And so I'll explain more in a second, but I want to start with a trailer. It's not every report that has a trailer, and this one does. <laughs> Stop that quick before John Cleese comes on. And um, where's the thing? Okay. So the question, why co-create? Why create now? Equity and justice are central to my story, but so is this. Um, the work we do at Open Doc is is in a certain sense predicated on what I, I guess this is the only terms I have to speak to to speak to it. Epistemological crisis. A world of fake news, a world where institutions seem to have reached the breaking point in terms of their capacity to stabilize cultural process. Um, a moment where we see fragmentation, whether in the form of bubbles or fractures or whatever. It's a really strange moment in terms of what constitutes reality and how we know what that reality is, why we share or don't share a sense of that. Documentary strikes me as a really interesting place to look at that because it because of its claims, its historical claims uh, to things like authenticity or truth or actuality. Uh, it's been, at least institutionally, inscribed with those kind of markers. Um, a lot of folks in the field tend to talk about a contract between the documentary and the audience that has those things as its premise. And obviously, that's not working very well today. And it's particularly not working at a moment where our best documentary uh, productions uh, in the world of television, things like Frontline, 
Uh, have an average uh, audience viewer age of, you know, a little bit north of 58 years old. That's not great in terms of where, how the future is being constructed, what kinds of knowledge people are sharing, what people take to be common values. So for us, this has been a really important mobilizing factor in our work, thinking this through and trying to figure out what can we do to come to terms with this. Um, the Open Doc Lab uh, tends to be, we're at MIT, we're physically in the media lab, we tend to be um, often associated to be part of it, but we're often seen as sort of pushing the tech side of documentary, where new technology meets documentary, where new forms of storytelling emerge, but we're really fundamentally also interested in new kinds of relationships, new kinds of relationships between um, makers and audiences, to put it in traditional terms, but especially among a, a, a public that is widely empowered. We all carry around the tools, of the means of production in our pockets. Almost all of us, and I don't just mean in the first world, have high-def uh, video cameras at, at our, within our reach. Um, and the kind of work coming out of you know, traditionally third world spaces is, has been eloquent and powerful. So how can we rethink the bonds among people, the ways in which mediation works as a broader cultural practice, not just the old consumption model, the maker-user model? Uh, so to that end, we, um, we started up a... Uh, kind of a, a new lab. So in addition to Open Doc Lab, we have the co-creation studio. And the, and the launch pad, the way to get the, the co-creation studio off the, off the ground was to figure out, well, we had a lot of ideas, but in fact, where do we stand in the larger field? So um, we, we wanted to launch a field study where we could really interrogate a diverse array of players in the field, figure out what they think, uh, see how that correlates to we think, learn and listen to what other people saw as the, as the pressing issues of the day, the ways in which this, broadly speaking, process of mediation uh, affects them, what challenges it's posing, what kinds of answers or creative solutions people had. That's, that's where this study came from. Um, to pull it off, to make it happen, um, we needed someone who was really steeped in this world, and we were extraordinarily fortunate to um, have Katerina Sizek uh, enter our lives. So uh, we, we knew Kat primarily as a maker of some of the most important, uh, really, really pace-setting um, interactive documentaries. The High Rise series has been a multiple Emmy award-winning uh, series, really pushing the boundaries of the form. But what's really magical about Kat's work, both in the High Rise and her, and her earlier projects, uh, is that she really pushed new methodologies, new ways of working with people. And that comes from a very particular place. These projects were almost all produced by the National Film Board of Canada. The NFB is a really important um, organization in the world of documentary. Not only was it founded by John Grierson, the man who coined the term documentary back in England in 1926, but who really built uh, uh, an empire for documentary. The Canadian, uh, the National Film Board is, is the world's largest documentary producer. Uh, they've been really strong in mainstream, linear documentary, animation as well, but they've also been quite active in the space of uh, pushing new technologies into this, uh, into this uh, problematic. And I, for me, the, the sort of reference point, the, the, the thing that turned me on to them, the thing that won me over for documentary back in my student days was uh, a movement within the NFB called Challenge for Change. Uh, Challenge for Change was a, was a movement, it, it sort of coincides with the technological shift, the emergence of the Porta Pack, that is to say, handheld, 
almost consumer-ready video equipment that, that it was a little expensive in those days, but NFP could afford it, that meant that regular people could use video. And Challenge for Change was a very a, a radical movement within the NFB, uh, a movement that believed that by putting cameras in the hands of the people formerly known as subjects, we would see the world in a different way. Uh, that the people that are normally the objects of the documentary, or the subjects of the documentary, in fact could be the producers, or co-producers, or co-creators of the documentary. NFB lasted uh, less than a decade, but it made some profound stuff. And, uh, it was a great coincidence today we talked about it in my documentary class. But a lot of it, John Grierson hated it. Um, he was still a crotchety old head of the NFB, and he really was not happy about it. What he saw were, was amateur, amateur work, work done by, by fishermen and, and Indians and farmers, uh, people that didn't really quite, hadn't really quite mastered the, the art of cinematography, kind of fuzzy images on those early porta packs. Um, but if the point of documentary is change, is making change, then the target of that change has to be really well positioned and really well understood. So for example, there's a series uh, that uh, produced by Colin Lowe at the NFB on the Fogo Islands. Fogo Islands were kind of a, a, a fishing island, pretty desolate and pretty much the, the fishery, the industry there had gone out of business. What to do with these minimally employed uh, fishermen who were pretty much all on the dole. The government decided to move them off the island. The fishermen objected. And so this uh, NFB went in, armed them with cameras. What came out was kind of, it's hard to look at. It's really hard to understand if you don't speak the dialect. But what it did, it was a really good, it was a testing ground, a proving place for the idea that process is sometimes more important than product that the process of making these representations, of these people filming one another, helped them to articulate their message more clearly, helped them to understand how they were coming across. They understood the value of the camera as weapon and could take it to their encounters with legislators. And if change was the goal, this particular bunch of documentaries changed their situation. It led to the fact that they could stay, that the government rethought the situation, these are not films for TV. These were not documentaries for everyone. But if change was their goal, they were quite effective about it. So, so Cat was really steeped in this idea of process over product, or process and product. It doesn't have to be a, a hierarchy. And what her work really explored were wonderful ways. I mean, one of her uh, One Millionth Tower is taking a kind of, a kind of decrepit high rise and having the folks inside it reimagine it. But reimagine it together with architects who are encouraged to think in new ways about their space. With uh, urban legislators who are imagined to, to, to rethink the high rise and it's problematic. To revision this, uh, it's a, it's, it, was a, it was a media effort that wasn't just an interactive documentary online somewhere. It was radio interviews. It was a subway poster campaign. It was town meetings. Uh, it was a collaborative effort across different do domains of expertise, a really exciting project. And each of the five projects within this tried, a different, tried to work across a different problematic <coughs> with this co-creation principle. So um, we brought her on, and she accepted to work as, as artistic director and co-principal investigator, and has been the, one of the real driving forces behind this. So Sarah Wallison, who directs the, the lab, and I were delighted. We're a great you know, trio in, in terms of getting getting this stuff moving. We were also really delighted to have um, 
support from people where it matters. Co-creation is, is relational at the end of the day. It's, I'll give you the def, uh, definitions we're using in a second. But it's about, a, it connotes a shared sense of ownership, of uh, a joint journey of discovery. And we were extraordinarily fortunate to have people like uh, the Ford Foundation, uh, the Just Films Group at Ford Foundation, MacArthur, the folks at MacArthur have been incredible. Um, um, Fee, the fledgling fund. These folks have been incredibly supportive. And, and what impresses me is that they're not just supporting this as an interesting project. They're supporting this because they want to learn about this methodology. They want to understand better how they can relate to the communities they try to serve. And to do it with fresh eyes, to do it with a fresh approach. So it's not just that they're giving us money, which I'm extraordinarily grateful for. Um, but that this is kind of, they're embracing this. They're, they're sort of entertaining this as a methodology that they, too, can use. They're helping us to spread the word. And that's just, that's extraordinary. That's really been uh, terrific. So um, you know, one of our goals is to open up new pathways for funding. And we'll talk in a second here, but one of our, this is an alternative to this kind of single authorship. And that's the gold standard in the academy. It's the gold standard in funding applications. Who is responsible? And when you start to diffuse that, you start to, the more you diffuse it, the, the more you limit your opportunities of getting funded. So we're really trying to work with these folks to reimagine how funding might work, especially in community contexts. Um, we, so what we tried to do was interview, as you saw, like 166 folks, and we tried to work across the silos, academics, makers, uh, t placemakers, technologists, journalists, students, movement builders, researchers. We really tried to cut across a bunch of different cohorts. It's North American-centric. That's a real limit. But we thought we would start with what we knew. Um, authorship, as you can imagine, and as I'll talk about in a minute, is a problem because we have a lot of people whose voices and whose work and whose ideas contributed to this uh, initiative. Um, Kat and I are the, are the authors. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And we have a bunch of, of, of people who were extraordinarily generous and important in making the arguments we made. And, um, not to forget the, the RA students who've been working here at the Open Doc Lab. Sam, I don't have your picture up there. I, <laughs> I should have taken one on the slide and slipped it up there. You're not, you're not to be found on Google image search. Oh, I, I figured it was intentional, so I didn't, I didn't push it. But um, it it's, was really a terrific team of people to work with. Uh, in terms of our process, you know, once we, once we finished the manuscript, um, we sent it out to all 166 folks to vet. It's been very well vetted. It's up online, by the way. I should mention that right at the outset, and I'll put the URL up afterwards. It runs around 300 pages, and it's uh, right now on MIT's PubPub, headed for, for better or worse, hardback uh, in existence as a hardback. But until then, it's a very dynamic and, and lovely uh, text. Um, Co-creation is not a replacement or a displacement of single authorship. There's a place for that. Now more than ever, when attribution matters, we need to know who is saying things, and we need to know with some, with some accuracy that they really did say what they said. That this is not an attempt to dis or eradicate or wipe out sole, uh, single authorship. But it is an endeavor to kind of recontextualize it and to recover, to restore uh, a, a creative tradition that's kind of been with us from the get-go. Uh, it's not for everyone. A number of our respondents said that. There are some projects that require a single vision, a, a visionary and a lot of drive, and like, do it my way, get on board or get out. 
But there are many other projects where the, the process, where the ability to work together with the community from the conception onwards is actually transformative. And that's the domain we've been looking at. It's, it's a bit marginalized. I mean, we inhabit uh, really since the, that's ah, even a little before the, 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 the Treaty of Anne and what's that, 1710, when intellectual property is kind of codified in the British system, authorship acquires a very particular kind of function. There's the attribution function, which is important, but there's also the property function, the branding of a text with a name. So I'm just happy you, happy you poor souls have been through this lecture already. Um, and what's happened with industrialization, the industrialization of culture, is that those have become the, the big trees, and they've kind, of, they've kind of cut the sunlight out from all these other forms of creativity including co-creation, which, which are there, which have been persistent, but, should, but mostly have been relegated to terms like folk, folk culture, amateur culture, fan, fan culture. You know, we have names for these, 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 these shrubs, these, the shrub-like growth under the, under the big trees. Uh, we're trying to we're clear a space uh, and, and, and let this stuff reemerge. Um, we're convinced that, um, that this is a way to confront some of the power systems that today perpetuate uh, inequity and inequality, and that offer alternatives that are open, equitable, and just. And often what we take our inspiration from are social movements. This is an ancient, as I said, ancient process. Our languages, what is the, are, no one invented, not some guy didn't sit around and think up the language. These have come from us. Our religions, sure, they get codified in books and people get burned at stakes when they disagree with one interpretation or another, but they came from us. They came from the people. Um, I would argue, you know, someone like Vladimir Prop uh, would probably argue that our whole story tradition, it's, he works on folk stories, why Whitney, comes bottom up. This stuff gets codified and then spoon-fed back to us as kind of the truth. But that's not, it didn't come from those authorities, it came from the bottom up. So this has been around. And our endeavor here is to learn both from the past, but also from communities, and it's usually marginalized communities, where these practices live on and thrive. So we've, done, we've really done our best to kind of talk to a wide range of people to try to figure out where does this work, how has it, uh, how has it sustained itself over the years, and how does it continue in a, in a capitalist economy. Um, complex problems require Thinking outside the box, you know, we have a these or this institution that we're in is a is a is a pretty good one in the sense of working across disciplines. But ultimately, we have disciplines and we have silos when it comes to things like climate change or cancer. We're really innovative because we've put three disciplines together in the Koch Center. Wow, three disciplines, and that's that's two steps in the right direction. But we're convinced that the more complex the problem, the more the problem benefits from large teams of people of multi-talented, multi-skilled, multi-disciplined people. And that when it's something like climate change that affects, really affects people in an approximate way, those people can sometimes have the most creative solutions of anyone. They've got the most motivation. So we want to learn, we want to find ways to enable uh, those voices to be heard and to be part of the, of the problem-solving uh, situation. One of the curiosities with this term, it's a, right now it's a, this stops in 2000, of course, it's a real buzz term. I'm starting to hear it from the marketing people, always bad news. Uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to quickly sort of spin this in a way where it cannot be. Transmedia, uh, see Carolyn here, is a word that was taken from here, 
and had a pretty coherent and well-defined meaning. Henry did a good job of, of pinning it down, but it's gone off to mean whatever when the marketers uh, got their hands on it. So this is one that you'll see a lot of in a lot of like wacko contexts, but we are doing our best to kind of pin it down and, 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 and keep it true with, to its roots. But one of, the, one of the curiosities, you see the growth in its use, it, it's, OED is a pretty interesting source for authoritative English and, and usually the stories of words. This has not yet appeared there, and I'm, I'm struck by that, by that discrepancy. We'll see. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll come, and I hope we're able to stain and taint that word before it, uh, it gets out there. So this is how we define it. Is this legible to you in the back, or should I read it? OK, I'll read it. So the, the working definition, um, co-creation offers alternatives to a single authored vision. It's a constellation of media methods and frameworks. Projects emerge out of process and evolve from within communities and with people rather than being made for or about them. Co-creation also spans across disciplines, organizations, and can involve non-human systems. Co-creation ethically reframes who creates, how, and why. Co-creation interprets the world, seeks to change it with a commitment to equity and justice. Um, I'm using an image here from uh, Marissa Yan, who works, used to work here in our lab and works downstairs in ACT, uh, part of a co-creation project she was involved in that deals with mirroring and kind of reimagining yourself in these encounters. Um, there are a lot of, when you see how the term is kind of used in the generic, it could mean anything as, as, as loose as um, crowdsourcing, crowd fleecing, you could say. Oh, we want people to contribute, you know, that, is that co-creation? No. Uh, that might be a, 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 a media maker vision where they want partners, they want help. Facebook is a great example, right? It wouldn't exist without us, but actually we don't really have too much to say about the algorithms that shape our, our world. Um, what we're looking, and then there's the other extreme of the media maker in service to the partner, and we're looking for, for something in the middle, something where the media maker and the community are working together. This is not about a de-skilling. This is not about saying everyone's the director and everyone's the editor. Divisions of labor, divisions of skill, divisions of interest exist, uh, and, and we acknowledge that. But it is about conceptualizing and developing projects from the get-go with the communities that they are, are, are emerging from. This is not about the parachute extractive model of documentary where you pop in for a couple of months and then, you know, see you on television. This is really about embedding yourself in, in, in that space and being part of it and listening, really listening and being informed by and responsive to the needs of community. It's a discovery process. Um, I should also say, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that really turned up in this project. There's not a... This is not a, in, in temporal terms, projects are rarely, rarely have the same co-creative character from start to finish. They ebb and they flow. There might be a lot of interaction with the community at one stage. It might sort of, when things go off, it depends on the medium, but when they might go off for some kind of special treatment, there might be a little bit less. And people are interested and lose interest and regain interest. So there's a, most of the folks we talk to describe this as a dynamic. It's not just a steady state, it's a dynamic. 
Um, there are a lot of cognates in a lot of fields. If you go to the, the website, you'll see this thing in action. But you can pretty much go through disciplines, documentary, journalism, the science and tech science space. If you click, it'll sort of open up cognates or related terms, participatory action research or whatever. Things that kind of overlap. This is quite a Venn diagram of overlapping. And that gets kind of graphically illustrated here. So we, we, we did attempt to kind of map the field conceptually and in disciplinary terms. Um, so as you kind of heard in that definition, we are really interested in three, in, in four domains, to be honest, within communities. And that's physical communities, face to face, but also um, disembodied communities, online uh, uh, digitally enabled communities, across disciplines and organizations, so things like internships, hackathons, but also cross-disciplinary work, and beyond human. And that boils down to working with biological agents and with artificial intelligent agents. Um, speculative, I will concede at the outset, but um, we'll see more. This is too small for most of you to see, but it just sort of maps out the, the four sectors I've just talked about. and. Um, so we can jump into this. And I want to just, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is, is, is look at a few um, examples drawn from these domains to give a sense more tangibly of what we were looking at, and, um, and then go to kind of the, 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 the takeaways, which alas, I think will be printed too small, but we'll see. Um, this is a group called Detroit Narrative Agency, DNA, who were fantastic. They were wonderful to work with. They're co-authors for this project. Uh, it's a group that's kind of comes is related to allied media in Detroit that is fundamentally concerned with shifting the narrative into the Detroit narrative, and they do this by way of uh, incubating and 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 sort of workshopping uh, films, usually short films, films that always have around them a kind of impact. Uh, uh, plan: How is this going to relate to the community? How does this come from the community? Uh, it's a it's a diverse group. It's it's. It's emphatically people of color. They really are terrific about deep listening as the predicate. You start by listening. And you listen, and you listen, and you listen, and you begin to, you begin to bounce ideas off one another. This is not about walking into a community with a preset plan. It's about listening to a community and letting something emerge from that. Uh, they have a deep history of activism in in uh, in Detroit. Uh, Sasha was really, Sasha Constanza-Chalk was really generous in, in connecting us. and. Even in our work process with these folks and with our study, it, it, we, you know, we try to, to some extent, practice what we preach. Um, it's, it's hard sometimes, but, it, but we, and with these folks, it was great. It was really wonderful because we listened a lot to them. We, uh, they had a lot of expectations. They, we developed a, a community benefits relationship, uh, a document agreement with them. So what exactly were we expecting? What exactly would come back to the community? What exactly would their status be on this report, co-authors? Uh, it was extraordinarily useful, and it's one of our takeaways from this study. That kind of clarity about what are the terms of engagement? What's the goal? Like being really articulate about that. It sometimes seems like self-evident or whatever. No, it's never self-evident. You've got to be clear. And it was fantastic to work with these folks. And, and to have that as part of our own learning process, and then something we could like learn from other folks uh, in, the, in the study from as well. Um, one of the things that comes out right away is that the kinds of job categories we're familiar with, like a director or a producer or a leader, have new kinds of functionalities, not to mention new labels. Uh, and these are just some of the names pulled from our interviews. But ego manager, curator, conductor, organizer, 
quantum chief, guide, facilitator, cat herder, collaboration designer. That, those, those older notions, in a certain sense, at least in these contexts, are tainted. And these became much, I mean, just interesting to hear from so many different people what other terms they use uh, when they try to explain. I mean, there has to be, there's a driving force in these things. <laughs> but, like, but it's someone that's self-effacing or doesn't want to be the boss or whatever. What kind of form does that take? And this was a, a wonderful exercise. And um, this is another community-based uh, uh, and, and a, a kind of not face-to-face, -face, but also not terrifically digital in a way. This is a Peruvian project, uh, the Quipu project. Um, Maria Cort and Rosemary Lerner uh, spearheaded a project to deal with uh, forced sterilization in Peru. Some 300,000 women um, Sorry, we're sterilized by Fujimori. And so it's a really horrible story because it's not just ends of families. It's physical trauma for life for some of these people. It's, it's horrible. Um, so these are peasants. These are indigenous people. They live in the middle of nowhere. They're off the grid. Not a lot of electricity for, for many of the, of the folks. Um, and so what they did was, was find, they distributed phones. And it's a hard group to reach. It's a hard group to reach as an urban. These are women, but it's still like urban you know, educators, university folks. They um, distributed phones, and they tried to get these folks to tell their stories, and to tell their stories to one another, and, to tell, and, and use that to snowball more and more participants. So they had a lot of participants. They uploaded that stuff to a website uh, using the Quipu principle. So this is an old Inca system of knotted threads. Uh, and the way you can store memory, the way you can tell stories, the way you can record data is through these, uh, to me it looks like a necklace with dangling things with knots on it, but that's not it. It's an information system. So they tried to use the, uh, sort of a, use that as an analogy for these telephone interviews that they had. Uh, they uploaded the stuff online uh, because th there was just, these, these places were often not connected, and then started to set up dialogue with outsiders with you know, people like me can call in and leave a response. So they set up this kind of asynchronous dialogue system that on the one hand is, has, has allowed these women to express their stories, which were often suppressed stories, and it's not a thing you go around talking to the world about. Uh, so it's, an, it's empowered them by being able to talk about their stories, by being able to reach a global community with their stories, by sort of seeing the response of a global community, a really empowering, ennobling story driven by the needs of these women, informed, I mean, they had endless community discussions with these folks uh, to try to figure out, like, well, what would be helpful? What compensate, money, yes, what are you gonna do with money? You're, you're, you know, you're, your life is shot, at least in, in, in this aspect of your life. What would be great, and that's where this—that's what this comes from. I mean, it's a powerful, it's an extraordinarily powerful uh, uh, story. Um, um, shifting now to the to the more institutional level. Um, so when we think about the, the collaboration among organizations, in this case, it's going to be a university and a film company and a government. But there's a lot of these, and the place we're in is actually a really interesting one in that regard. Uh, the the. Um, Center for Advanced Visual Studies, CABS, the predecessor of ACT uh, downstairs with, uh, with Kepish, was a really interesting way to bring, you know, he, he really endeavored to bring, to cross MIT and bring in technologists and artists, people working in sonar and, um, you know, optical effects, new tech, uh, video, bringing them together to sort of generate new stuff. And ACT, it lives, this lives on in the, in the ACT program uh, 
uh, downstairs. Things like EAT, Experiments in Art and Technology. 70s is a really rich period with, with a lot of these endeavors. Uh, Ars Electronica and CERN get together and start to sponsor artist residencies. So, with the, so we really looked hard at these kind of residency programs. What works, what doesn't, how long is too short, and how long is too long. Um, we're especially interested not so much in placing artists in some corporation, but watching what happens when an artist can change something in the corporation, or when the corporation can change something in the artist. It's that, it's, it's that transformation that's really important. In this case, uh, this is a, a film made by the Haida community in um, northwestern uh, Canada, a First Nations group. Uh, when this project started, there were about 20 fluent speakers of Haida left. This had been uh, an enormous uh, uh, nation, pretty much wiped out as most indigenous nations were by disease and um, not a lot of support. Um, so this, this nation has been having kind of a resurgence and uh, they have a They've been leading a, a number of legal and uh, campaigns, and still, as far as I know, they have a lawsuit that's still out with the Canadian government. Um, with the Supreme, it's right now with the, was at the Supreme Court when I last mm -hmm. checked. So they they were the primary driver of this project. They wanted to make a film that would be in their language, that would deal with their culture as a way of, in the process, both skilling folks in the community, giving them like movie, you know, film production skills, and uh, but at the same time, culturally skilling them in the sense of helping them re-embrace their tradition, helping them relearn their language. Uh, this was the nation. This was the, the, the Haida Nation's goal. Um, they partnered with a, with a film company that was an Inuit, so, so an Eskimo, an Inuit uh, film company, which is a really great choice uh, to use, uh, who kind of came on board. The Haida uh, community held all the rights and had final say, final cut, to, to say it that way. Uh, but the, the Inuit group were really amazing, too, because they had quite a bit of experience as Inuit people working with, working with folks who had ambitions and visions, but not a whole lot of experience in the film world, uh, but really a keen desire about what they wanted to achieve. So that was really a, a great mix. And then they had university partners. And um, the results were really stunning. It's, it's a fantastic film. I don't, it hasn't probably been here, but I've seen it at a couple of film festivals. It's an amazing film, and indeed achieved the goals they wanted. A lot of upskilling, language is, is, is the language facility is, is growing quickly. Um, this is more of an interdisciplinary project, and it's a, it's a curious one. Gina Zarnecki is a British uh, pioneer in bio art. She's an artist. And she's, this is a project where she basically wanted to um, have living skin portraits of her two daughters. Um, so she built uh, masks, and, uh, but she needed skin to grow on these. She needed her daughter's skin to grow on these masks. And obviously, I mean, she wasn't a, she wasn't a biologist, so she sought out a number of biologists. Who could help her? Who were the skin specialists who could help her with this uh, endeavor? And everyone she went to said, well, we'll help you. You know, you can grow skin flat, and then you can like glue it on the face, and well, good luck, good luck if it lasts a day there. Nutri we can do a drip, a nutrient drip, but like, good luck. She said, no, no, I want it to grow vertically. It's like, lady, you don't know what you're talking about. And so she went from biologist to biologist until she found uh, John Hunt. And John Hunt said, let's give it a shot. You know, we never tried it that way. Let's do it. And they discovered all kind of new affordances in the cell structure by growing vertically. They just never tried it. So this would be a great example of the 
an artist with kind of a, you know, kind of a crazy idea, um, approaching a biologist, but changing the way biologists, specialists in this sector think about their work. So they've developed new techniques now for skin that's being used on burn victims and, um, you know, for whatever whatever reason, skin repair is in use. So it was a win-win. It was a great way to kind of enable this this idea, but at the same time transform something that you would think an artist has very little to say uh, about. Um, now we're jumping over to the, the last sector working with non-humans. This is a project by Stephanie Dinkins, Binaw48. Uh, Stephanie is a, an artist, a, a New York-based artist who works a lot uh, with the blind spots between artificial intelligence and race. Um, and, there, and we know from here in the Media Lab, from, from Joy's work, there's some pretty profound critiques we can make about the way especially facial recognition systems are used with AI. But Stephanie pushes it to a new level. She's, she's built this, she's taken this kind of robotic mannequin and has trained it on her own thoughts and uses it as a conversation partner. And co-creation, so is this a, what is this? Is this, a, the question of agency in AI is a really interesting one. Um, I guess some of us cede our agency to AI, but the question is, is that a worthy thing to do? And is does AI yet deserve that? Uh, it was really interesting to talk to Stephanie about that issue. Of where does agency reside? Uh, she's really eloquent on it and talks about like understanding that, really grappling with that problem as fundamental to understanding algorithmic justice. Like you can't think about algorithmic justice unless you've sort of sorted out where agency lies, what are the limits of control. Uh, so she's been working, one of her many projects has been to sort of develop this alter ego in a way. And, and she talks about learning from it, to having questions posed that she hadn't expected. I guess like any good analyst, they hear things that, in what you're saying that you don't hear yourself. But it sounds a bit like that, that process is happening here. Um, we had someone in our lab um, uh, now working in New York, Sheeran Anlin, uh, an Israeli artist who works a lot with AI. She's taken the notice, we, we use the word intelligence in artificial intelligence. Uh, in the early days, in the 50s, they were talking about mathematical uh, Frankensteins. They're talking about wizards, uh, electronic brains. How literally should we take these metaphors? And if we take them literally, Sheeran's question, might, might we push it a little bit and say, well, they might have intelligence. What about mental illness? Might there be such a condition as mental illness that we should be thinking through in these systems? Uh, so her work has kind of uh, explored that work that's really resonant in this space. We're working with stuff on deep fake, on fake AI. There's quite a bit of that around. Um, so these are all places where we're trying to push. The, it's a speculative. Is this true co-creation? It depends on how you see agency in that, and it depends on how you understand agency in these systems. Uh, another example, this one takes a lot of surveillance, uh, surveillance data and co-creates with the artist who paints, and the system is learning from her painting, but also informing that painting through uh, through uh, uh, translating surveillance of traffic uh, flows into, into images. Uh, so I guess the premise here is that agency is a, is a precondition for justice. And, and these are ways of interrogating that agency, inter whether, whether in racial terms and in surveillance terms. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at my time here, so I need to buzz this through. We've come up with a bunch of principles, and I'm sorry that this is uh, so puny to those of you in the back. But I'll try to buzz through these pretty quickly. Um, so as I've said a couple of times, we, the goal here is to create projects that don't 
originate from a single authored vision, but rather emerge from relationships, to create projects that emerge from process, potentially with uh, many outcomes that, driver, that differ from a, a sole a soul authored uh, uh, process, to make media with people within communities, not for or about them, a lot of the stuff's in the definition, to reframe who gets to tell the story, who owns the story, and why. The why is crucial. That needs to be articulated. Uh, Racial equity, narrative sovereignty, digital justice are, are premises for this work. Um, to work with citizens, communities, and scholars across institutions, disciplines, for a parallel process of discovery, some of the stuff I've alluded to in the last few examples, to ensure that all partners respect each other's expertise, including firsthand experience. And that's really important. It's so easy, especially in kind of precarious situations, uh, situations where people are, are marginalized or vulnerable to kind of know more than they know from your we, I think that's the nature of subjectivity. We tend to always think we know more than those around us, or at least this subject does. Um, <laughs> so um, how, to really, how to really step back from that and, and be attentive to, to respect and to, and to privilege firsthand experience, uh, even when it seems like it's kind of crazy. Um, to use appropriate technology, workflows, tools, and protocols, um, you know, multiple modes of storytelling, ensure that impact and sustainability, that healing and reciprocity are part of the process. The more vulnerable the stories, the more vulnerable the site of, of exploration, the more being attentive to things like healing, to what's going back to that community, to not being extractive, but to trying to find ways to use this to bolster and strengthen uh, are become important. Um, of course, not just to deal you know, marks, not don't just change the uh, interpret the world, change it. That's pretty central. And sharing and learning. Um, so we've. Uh, I want to just hit a couple more things here. There are risks and there are lessons. I'll start with the positive and and go to the negative. Uh, deep listening and dialogue are fundamental. I mean, that's just the crew. That's the that's the equalizer. That's the that is the level playing field. Um, Developing common principles, developing manifestos, being articulate about what are goals, what are workflow processes. Can't under, that just came through from pretty much everyone we talked about. Consents and benefit, uh, community benefit agreements are crucial. Our study has a lot of prototypes for this, but finding ways to make sure you give back to a community, finding ways to make sure this is not a, an extractive process, but a generative one for the community, for the people sharing is crucial. And there's a lot of ways to, there's a lot of structures, contracts, uh, that can make that happen. In a litigious world, nothing beats a contract. Um, a, finding a balance between process and outcome. Uh, here, the, what I mean by this is that Fogo Island process I talked about, where a few people and some ugly images can really be transformative, uh, as opposed to something that's really slick and reaches a lot of people. But sometimes, these projects have to be slick and have to reach a lot of people. What kind of compromises do you make there? So it's really being clear about how you're targeting your, your message and whether the process is preeminent or whether the product is preeminent.